From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology coming up in the next hours. Some of the world's most recognizable brands, from Apple to Coca-Cola, are being warned to pull advertising from Twitter, depending on how Elon Musk moderates content or not. But it's not just Twitter that has an ad problem. All major social networks are reeling from fewer ad dollars. Will they even go to social media in the future or flee to streaming? We'll discuss. Plus, Airbnb gets a reality check as consumers shift away from higher-cost rentals that thrived in the pandemic. CEO Brian Chesky joins us to talk about his outlook on travel and address those high cleaning fees. And as tensions between the U.S. and China persist, how do businesses change their strategy? Plus, where is Jack Ma, a former Alibaba exec? will join us. We're going to get to all of that in a moment, but first, stocks selling off the most on a Fed day since January of last year. Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow here with the latest. And Ed, the Fed not changing strategy anytime soon, it seems. Fed not changing strategy anytime soon, and the earnings season keeps hitting us over the head with the same themes. Let's start with Qualcomm giving a tepid forecast for the final three months of this year, the fiscal first quarter, down 5% in after hours. They're talking about a major slowdown, double-digit decline in full-year calendar 22 for smartphone handsets, but at the same time, macroeconomic headwinds and the lockdowns in China impacting demand, inventory levels high. Other bright spots, though, Robinhood having a positive quarter, third quarter revenue beating analyst estimates, transaction-based income looking strong, and eBay up almost 8% in after hours, a real bright spot. There's evidence that this shift that eBay is trying to do to the luxury end of the market really paying off, but really, it was the profit forecast for the final three months of this year that's caught the market's eye. We're up eight tenths of one percent. Really interesting Fed day. As you said, the S&P 500 having its worst post-Fed close since January of 2021, almost two years ago, down two and a half percent. But tech, the real underperformer. It was names like Apple and Tesla that were the biggest points drags on the Nasdaq 100 reacting. The message from Fed Powell, pretty clear premature to start thinking that rate hikes are going to end anytime soon. That after the Fed raised, uh, raised rates by 75 basis points, bringing us to a range of 3.75 to 4% of the target rate. Mega cap 
reacting. Why? Because higher rates discount the present value of future profits. Quick mention of Airbnb, by the way, Em. I know we're going to be talking about this later in the show, but Airbnb having its biggest drop on record this Wednesday. Biggest drop on record, which is something pretty hard to believe. Of course, again, analysts jumping on that tepid outlook for the fourth quarter of this year. Revenue of $1.8 to $1.88 billion, below street expectations. But what they're talking about here is a slowdown in bookings going into that fourth quarter and a change in some of the themes we're seeing in, in the habits of consumers and how they treat Airbnb. Right. We're going to ask CEO Brian Chesky about all of that in just a moment. But first, a little bit more about Twitter and advertising. Elon Musk taking over Twitter at one of the most precarious moments for big tech companies that have built massive businesses based on ad revenue. Platforms we've taken for granted, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, have been free to users thanks to those ads. But that is beginning to change and could continue to change Fast. For more, I want to bring in Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner. Kurt, before we go any farther, what's actually happening with uh, Twitter's ad products right now? We've, there's been talk about a potential advertiser boycott. Elon Musk yeah. has put uh, some ideas out there about a subscription. Where do we stand right now? Yeah, I mean, right now, everything is sort of where it was, you know, last week. But you just mentioned there's some looming things that could be incredibly uh, impactful. The first is this potential boycott, right? Like this idea that advertisers are going to say, hey, we're not going to spend money on this platform and, unless you do certain things around speech or, or policing of speech. And we saw that with Facebook a few years ago, Emily, you probably remember. And it was a big deal, but Facebook was able to weather that storm um, for a couple reasons. And one of them was that, you know, they had Sheryl Stanberg out there talking to advertisers and, and other senior leaders. Now, all the senior leaders at Twitter who would be having those conversations are gone. And so that's why I feel like an advertising boycott at Twitter could be kind of dicey um, if indeed that is the route that some people go, which, you know, as we've seen, they'd be willing to do it before. I wouldn't be surprised if that something like that happens again. Meantime, you know, Twitter is grappling with the fact that advertisers are potentially going elsewhere in general and also facing a massive economic slowdown. How are advertisers thinking about whether to spend their dollars on social media or look to things like streaming? I mean, this sounds so obvious, but if you're an advertiser, especially right now when budgets are a little bit tighter, when there's this massive inflation issue that's going on, you're only going to spend money where you can see a return on that investment, right? So that historically has been places like Google and Facebook, uh, places with really strong direct response businesses, right? So I put a dollar in and I know with some you know, consistency, I'm going to get a dollar fifty in sales out. Now, Twitter is always been different than that. They've always specialized in what's called brand advertising, right? It's the kind of stuff you see around the Super Bowl or on a billboard or whatever. That is not necessarily something that is easy to measure for ROI. It's not the kind of thing that I think when uh, you know, uh, times are tough and, and money is tight that you want to go spend a bunch of money on that. So I do think regardless of what's going on with Elon, I just think spending money on Twitter right now is probably a tough, you know, sell just given the environment that we're in economically. Uh, we heard a little bit from Kathy Wood, who seems excited about Elon Musk's plans per usual. Let's take a quick listen to what she had to say on Bloomberg earlier today. This subscription advertising model is a very smart move if he goes in that direction. 
the verification, that little check is very important to people and could help clean up uh, the platform considerably. You know, it's not surprising that someone like Kathy Wood would be excited about Elon Musk's plans, but you know, what do you make of, of yeah. her support and whether, you know, there will be a wave of, you know, advertisers and, and, and people out there who like what Elon is doing? Yeah, I'm smiling not because, uh, you know, I, I necessarily disagree that the, the blue check has value. Uh, I'm just not sure that this idea that it's going to clean up the service of bots really makes a whole lot of sense. We've seen Elon talk about this as well, right? That, well, once I start charging for the blue check, you know, bots won't pay for the blue check and then we'll know who's real and who's not. Well, that implies, Emily, that regular people are going to pay for a blue check mark too. And $8 a month uh, is not, you know, uh, necessarily something that people are, are willing to fork over for, you know, proving to Elon Musk that they are a human being. And so I'm curious to see how this works. To me, it feels relatively rushed. Um, maybe there's more nuance to it that we just haven't learned yet, right? Because a lot of this he's just conveying via his own tweets. So perhaps there's a much broader plan that we're just not seeing. But at least on the surface, I, I feel like this idea of, you know, we're suddenly going to uh, know who the humans are and who the bots are because the humans are the ones who are going to pay. It just doesn't feel realistic when you have, you know, hundreds of millions of people on a service. Not that many people are going to want to pay for this. All right. Uh, so much more. TBD. Uh, Bloomberg's Kurt yeah. Wagner, thank you, of course, for all of your reporting on Twitter. We'll continue to follow uh, your stuff. Coming up, Airbnb just had its best quarter yet. So why the stock plunge? CEO Brian Chesky will give us his take on that and more next. This is Bloomberg. Let's get back to earnings now with Airbnb reporting big revenue and net income numbers, but shares falling after the company gave a disappointing outlook for bookings in the fourth quarter, closing down more than 13 percent. I want to bring in CEO Brian Chesky to address it all now. Brian, thank you, as always, for joining us. So $1.2 billion in net income, $2.9 billion in revenue. These are big numbers, um, but Investors still pretty disappointed. What's your response to this big stock plunge? I believe it's the biggest stock market drop for Airbnb since going public. Well, you know, I've tried to make sure that we focus on um, what we can deliver. And you're right, Emily, we delivered a record quarter, a billion and a half of EBITDA, uh, nearly a billion dollars in free cash flow, $3.3 billion in the trailing 12 months. I think that, you know, people in the world, this is a very uncertain time, and everyone's really looking for indications of what the future holds. Um, we've tried to make very clear on, on the call that we're actually feeling very confident about Q4. So people are traveling. That's why results were really good in Q3, and we're actually feeling really confident. And I want to make sure people know that. 
So let's hone on the, uh, the, in on this moderating of booking growth that you see. If we are heading into a long-term recession, who's to say that, that consumers aren't going to cut back on travel or aren't going to choose to stay in cheaper, closer places rather than splurge on that trip abroad and that that's going to add up for Airbnb? Well, this is a great point, Emily. One of the things I just say, though, is that one of the things we learned in the pandemic is that we have a very adaptable business model. For example, remember, recall in 2020, Airbnb was the first company to rebound in all of travel. That's partly why we had such a successful IPO. And the reason why is we are a more affordable option. We have never nearly every type of space in nearly every community. So if people cut back cross-border travel, they might start working more from Airbnb. So we found a very resilient model, and that's something I'm feeling really confident about. Chris Bryant, our Bloomberg opinion columnist, had an interesting take. He suggested if Airbnb has a problem, it's that you're making too much money. How do you respond to that? Uh, no one would ever told us that two and a half years ago. We were losing $250 million a year in EBITDA. And of course, now we delivered a billion and a half dollars in EBITDA in the quarter. You know, we are increasingly investing more in the customer experience every year. The reason we're getting more profitable is we're more efficient. We're incredibly disciplined. We only have 6,000 employees. We spend a lot less on marketing than any other travel company of our size in the online space. Um, but, you know, with air cover, we're investing a lot more in the customer experience this year. So we're going to continue to be more efficient, but we're going to continue to deliver more and more for customers. And I also understand that people really care about value. They want to make sure that Airbnb is still a brand you can come to get a great value. We're known for affordable travel. And I know that people are really concerned about whether or not our, our um, Airbnbs will continue to be affordable, and they will be. We're going to continue to focus on making sure our prices are competitive. And so that's what we're focused on. So let's talk about the transparency around pricing that you hinted at. I think we've all had that feeling of looking at a rental on Airbnb, then we click all the way through and, and the price changes given all the fees, the cleaning fee, et cetera. What can we expect that transparency to look like? Well, yeah, Emily, I think there's two things going on. The first is people, sh we, we want people to understand our pricing, not be surprised. The second is we want to make sure that when they do see the final price, they feel really good about the final price and it's still a great value. So we are working on updating some of the designs for our platform to make everything even more intuitive. And we're going to have some updates very, very soon. So stay tuned. Let's talk a little bit about average daily rates. There's an expectation those are going to come under pressure in the next quarter, given the strong dollar. If the bookings mix shifts to potentially cheaper rentals, can you give us some insight on consumer preferences right now? What do consumers want that you're seeing through the holiday season and into 2023? We're not seeing a major change. I mean, what I would say is the reason that price per night on Airbnb has gone up in the last couple of years is before the pandemic, most people were using Airbnb to cross the border and stay in a city and stay in a one-bedroom, two-bedroom place. Now, a lot of people are booking three, four, five-bedroom homes, and they're doing it because they're going with their friends, their families, their coworkers, or they're living in the house. And so now the average jail rate's higher because the homes are bigger. What we think is when Asia recovers, that could moderate price per night a little bit, but that's a good thing 
because that will actually lead to a lot more volume because you get an entire continent to be traveling a lot more. And I do think you're going to see that grow. So we actually are expecting a pretty stable average daily rate. We're not seeing major shifts in the way people use Airbnb just yet. Long-term stay is still hugely popular, yeah. about 20% of nights booked. Give us some insight on that trend, because I wonder, is it plateauing at all? Is it slowing down? I mean, is the growth that you saw there over? No, no. I mean, honestly, long-term stays is still the fastest-growing segment by length of stay on Airbnb. Now, because the short-term stays have recovered, it's now been stable at 20%. I do expect in the coming years ahead, though, long-term stays will probably increasingly grow as a percentage of our business. And the reason why is because increasingly, I think more people are going to be flexible, fewer people will have leases. I'm not saying no one will. I'm just saying enough for this market to continue to grow. So this is going to be a huge new growth, growth opportunity for us in the coming years to come. It's so fascinating just how much how people use Airbnb has changed just in the last couple of years. Do you have any concern that Airbnb is over-reliant potentially on long-term stays? No, because, um, you know, we just got to make sure that each segment is growing. And the long-term stays aren't really coming at the cost of short-term stays. So as long as short-term stays continue to grow, think of it as another layer. It's kind of like Amazon sells books, and now they sell electronics, and now they sell another category. We don't think these categories will necessarily cannibalize. These are really different use cases. And a lot of people are coming to Airbnb just to list monthly stays. So this, I think, can open up a lot. I actually think monthly stays can make short-term stays more popular because some people might book an Airbnb for a long-term stay and say, hey, that wasn't so bad staying at someone else's home. Maybe I'll do it for a short-term stay. So it may actually have a way of bringing more customers into Airbnb. That's at least what, we, what our theory is. Interesting. You do have some analysts out there who seem to be thinking Airbnb is priced too high compared to some of your travel peers, especially if the bookings mix is changing. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, our guests still tell us that Airbnb is the best value. That being said, we do want to make sure that as the economy slows down, our value is even better. And we do know that hotels are starting to lower prices. And we want to make sure that our pricing is as dynamic. So one of the things we're doing is we're investing a lot more in pricing tools for hosts so that they can have more dynamic pricing. And if hotels lower rates and they want to lower rates and be more competitive, they can do that. So I still think we're offer a great value, but there is no question that there's a lot more we can be doing on value. And that's something we're going to be really focused on over the next six months in time for the next travel season. So longer term, I, you know, obviously you've launched categories, which I know you're really excited about. Supply is going to be key. How do you see growth in supply over the next two years compared to the growth you saw in supply over the last two years? And how do you convince all of these new would-be hosts to choose Airbnb first and only potentially? Yeah. I think it's a great question. Um, well, let me say this. Number one, I expect a lot more new supply over the next two years than the last two years. Um, the last two years have actually been pretty hard because of the pandemic. Not everyone wanted other people in their homes. I think in the next two years, they're going to be a lot more interested for two reasons. Number one, uh, the further the pandemic is behind us, the less reticent they are. But more importantly, Emily, as you recall, we started during 2008, Airbnb, during the Great Recession. And during the Great Recession, 
a lot of people needed to make extra money and they turned to Airbnb to host for the first time. I think that's going to happen again. And the final thing I'll say, I'm going to give a plug on November 16th <laughs> at 8 a.m. Eastern time, we're going to unveil a whole new, super easy way to list your home on Airbnb. And I think that is going to be a big driver of a lot more hosts. So we have some really cool new products they're going to be launching in fewer than two weeks. And I think that's going to add an acceleration. All right, November 16th, we will be watching. Last question, Airbnb was started in the middle of the financial crisis. You obviously survived and thrived ultimately in the pandemic. What's your strategy on costs through this downturn? Are you considering M&A given all that cash and potentially opportunistic or advantageous valuations out there? You know, how are you mapping this out given we could be in this for a couple of years? That's a great question, too. Um, let me tell you the, a really important lesson I learned during the pandemic. You know, in uh, between uh, February and in April of 2020, we were one of the first companies hit by the pandemic. We lost 80% of our business in eight weeks. And a 1,000 of us got in a foxhole. And we rebuilt the company from the ground up. And the company we rebuilt was a much smaller, much leaner, much more disciplined company. The reason we did $3 billion in free cash in the last 12 months is because of that discipline. And what I told the team is no matter how good the economy is, no matter how bad the economy is, we are going to try to not ever run the company differently because of the economy. You can only do that if you stay disciplined, right? You don't ever want to have to get more disciplined. So I said, we should be prepared for a storm whenever it comes. We're not going to change the way we run the company. And because of that, beginning this year, we were only, for example, forecasting hiring 7% more employees this year. When other tech companies were going to hire 20, 30, 40%, now they have to pull back. We're not pulling back. In fact, we're not pulling on the brakes. We're going to step on the gas. But stepping the gas doesn't mean we have to spend a lot more money. It's just a lot more velocity via speed, innovation, and taking more market share. All right. Brian Chesky, we'll keep that in mind. CEO of Airbnb, thanks for making the time today, Brian. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. We're going to be right back with more of Bloomberg Technology after this quick break. This is Bloomberg. China is making moves that will severely curtail shipments in and out of the world's largest iPhone factory. Beijing is imposing a seven-day lockdown on the area in Zhengzhou. This after the number of COVID cases in the city almost quadrupled from Monday to Tuesday. And it's a profit and sales miss for Paramount Global, the parent company of CBS, Nickelodeon and MTV Networks reporting earnings and the big problem, continuing weakness in advertising. Still, there's been a turnaround in Paramount's film studio with revenue up 48% in the third quarter and Top Gun Maverick is the highest grossing film so far this year. Meantime, Amazon also feeling the heat on its ad business and it's now taking more drastic measures to align expenses with a slowdown in sales. Sources telling Bloomberg that the world's largest e-commerce company is freezing staff levels 
in its profitable ads business. Amazon will continue to fill vacancies in this unit, but won't create any new jobs. Coming up, growing demand for cybersecurity services. We're going to talk with the CEO tracking cyber efforts in Russia's war on Ukraine. Plus, later, the story behind the rise of the tech giant Alibaba. We're going to get the inside story from former exec Brian Wong, who's got a new book out on just that. This is Bloomberg. The numbers are holding up better than expected. Sorry, business isn't all that bad. Bloomberg breaks the numbers first. Netflix earnings going across the wire. A big beat. The stock is up more than 8%. Coming in stronger than their rivals. With exclusive expert analysis. Finally back to growth. The mother of all opportunities. What is the industry to watch? That's where the rubber hits the road for Goldman Sachs. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. The banking sector says people and businesses are paying more and more in the wake of ransomware attacks. Banks reported $1.2 billion in ransomware payments last year alone, nearly five times as much as in 2019. And that is just a taste of what Jeff Stone will explore with Bloomberg's weekly Cyber Bulletin newsletter, including exclusive coverage inside the world of hackers and cyber espionage and how businesses are playing defense. Jeff, tell us more about Cyber Bulletin and what your goals are here. The goal here is to help uh, people understand, Emily, that cybersecurity is a lot more than ones and zeros in the latest big data breach. There's all kinds of characters involved in this world now. Cryptocurrency fraud is part of this. Disinformation is part of this. All kinds of influence operations and everyone trying to monetize data. So that's what we're trying to explore here and really help people understand how they can protect themselves more urgently. Now, cyber threats have been on the rise for a while. Why now are you launching this? We're busier than ever, mostly. We figured we'd take on one more project. But basically, since, since the invasion of Ukraine really has highlighted uh, this big explosion of ransomware, as you, as you just alluded to, um, it is urgent for people to get a better sense of really what these threats look like and how to respond in cyberspace. Again, I think people are used to this world of email scams and different kinds of fraud through your apps that you're still trying to get a handle on, but we're really gonna dig in and help people um, straighten out how to protect themselves uh, at a more urgent time than ever. All right, Bloomberg's Jeff Stone, you can sign up for that weekly Bloomberg Cyber Bulletin newsletter at Bloomberg.com. Thanks, Jeff. We'll stay tuned. Well, for more on the state of cybersecurity, I want to bring in Christopher Alberg, the CEO of the cybersecurity firm Recorded Future, which is actively tracking the cybersecurity threat level in Ukraine. Uh, Chris, give us the latest there. You've been involved yeah, for, for several months now. Tell us what you're most worried about at this time. 
You know, it's it's really interesting. We started basically, we had worked a little bit with one particular part of the Ukrainian government, their national cert. On the morning of the 24th of February, we sort of stood up publicly. You can check out our nice tweet on that and said, look, we would get behind these guys and, and help them in every every and any way we can. And so now our, our intelligence platform is in the hands of seven agencies over there. And look, it, it's been interesting. Uh, at In the lead up of the war, there was uh, a whole bunch of Russian activity at the very sort of... Uh, crossover into the war. They killed a bunch of communications infrastructure. The Russians has taken apart a bunch of systems. They have certainly been running a whole bunch of destructive malware campaigns uh, against, uh, call it Ukrainian power infrastructure and the like, ongoingly. What's actually been very impressive is how the Ukrainians together with foreign firms and foreign intelligence agencies and help people helping them have been able to withstand this. That's actually the most impressive. But the dear Russians are ongoingly going at it. And we may not hear too much about it because obviously as, as much as when bullets and the like fly in the air, a lot of other things may go to the back. But um, it's it's full, full speed ahead there for sure. You've been donating software, geopolitical intelligence to Ukrainian agencies. How long are you prepared to do this for? No, no ending. Uh, no ending to that. We we came out and said we would go in all in and and try to help them in every way we could. Uh, we announced a big hiring initiative. We're hiring another hundred people in in Ukraine. We're sort of to to your point. We've given them software and access to our intelligence cloud in in seven different agencies, and they're using it to to go at uh, cyber attacks, disinformation, and helping on the battlefield. We think it's been quite impactful. You know, obviously we can only do our little part, uh, but we will do it as long as it can, as we as we can, and and help them in every way they can, they they need to to be able to help them basically crush the Russians because that's I think what this is all about. If I'm slightly blunt here, we've got some big midterm elections coming up in the United States. How would you rate the cyber threat level more broadly, and and what are you most concerned about when it comes? To these upcoming elections? So I would say that it's interesting that the sort of the broad sort of set of disinformation activity around that is, is ongoing and it's sort of at the same level as we saw in 2020. I think there's been a lot of good work done by the U.S. government. There's a lot of other sort of the firms, whether it's the social media firms and, and people sort of on top of that in terms of sort of fighting back on some of this. Uh, the Russians are still there by no no question. IRA, the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, they're still trying to go at it, targeting maybe a little bit sort of very targeted audiences that they can come at. They obviously are quite busy on the home front. Uh, the Iranians have also been pretty busy on the home front, so maybe not, not as much. We, we, we could all have read over the last couple of days about some interesting things where the Chinese are going at it. So... There are threats there, but I think we're, we'll be in good shape. The election is going to be safe. It's going to be a good election. And and uh, even though these guys are trying, I think we're doing better. So what's keeping you up at night right now that we're not talking about enough? So I think it's, you you because obviously, you know, you heard it in Jeff's sort of point here just now, there's plenty of cyber activity and, and it's not great. But I think we haven't even really started yet. I like to say that over the last 25 years, 
the world have sort of slowly migrated onto the internet. Uh, next 25 years, the internet is sort of where it starts and the world ends up being a reflection of the internet, whether it's world power or business or currency or money or identity, it all is going to emerge out of the internet. And in that world, we better have our act together. We think that is an incredible opportunity to build an intelligence company. We want to be the Bloomberg of cyber if you want. But in that, but the world better have its act together because the this internet-centric world is, is going to be quite wild. And, and so we better all be, all be ready for a ride. I wonder how you think about, you know, Elon Musk taking over at Twitter, potentially having a more open-minded approach to, to content moderation. Does the world have its act together? Uh, so, so dangerous subject to get into. I think he'll do good with it. I, I'm, I'm sort of a very positive person, even though I maybe sound a little bit scared there before. I think he will have new smart ways to go at content moderation. Uh, you know, so so I'm an optimist about that. But, you know, and if he screws it up, the, the dangerous part, or not dangerous, dangerous part for him is that these are pretty fleeting sort of audiences. They'll go anywhere else. And, and you know, actually, maybe one danger here is that if he doesn't handle this one well, we might see too much of this audience going over in the hands of TikTok. And to be honest, I'd much rather have Elon Musk run a great platform or even maybe not such a great platform here in the United States than having our sort of upcoming generations living their social life on TikTok. I'd take, uh, take, take Twitter over that any day. And why is that? Because I think if our dear Chinese friends are controlling the information flow on TikTok, whether that's sort of controlling the news flow, being able to intercept communications on that, in that sort of, you know, much too, too much control in the hands of, uh, of the Chinese government, to be frank, or Chinese intelligence agencies. Not a good thing. All right. Well, appreciate you navigating, uh, wading into some tricky territory with us. Christopher Alberg, yeah. CEO of Recorded Future, thank you for sharing your thoughts here. We'll have to have you back soon. Coming up, the much. line between traditional finance and decentralized finance getting blurred. We're going to talk a little bit more about how next. This is Bloomberg. some people have avoided this asset class. It's very risky. It is not appropriate for everyone. In fact, when you buy cryptocurrency on SoFi, we say this is a risky asset. It's unproven and you could lose all of your money. So um, with prices down at this level, we are seeing people uh, take an opportunity to um, you know, experiment with this type of investment and get to know the asset better. So Fai's Anthony Noto there earlier on Bloomberg as the worlds of traditional finance and DeFi continue to collide. Bloomberg's Shanali Basik 
here to explain more what is happening. Shanali, take it away. Emily, I think it's really important to listen to what Anthony Noto over at SoFi had to say about crypto because they're a traditional financial technology firm that successfully acquired a bank and that has helped it really rein in a lot of depositor money from clients which then can potentially be used to do things like buy a little crypto in a downturn or invest elsewhere. The real reality is options here to borrow, to buy assets and to, to deposit your money for safekeeping at a at, you know, at SoFi, a higher interest rate than many other large banks, that is the choice that you're faced with at the end of the day. So that rolls us forward to soon after that interview we did with the SoFi CEO to comments that were made by the CEO of Binance. We know that Binance had considered making as much of a billion dollars or more worth of acquisitions, and you have CZ now talking about the idea of buying a bank. There are people who hold certain types of local licenses, traditional banking, payment service providers, even banks. And we're looking at those things, he says. And we want to be the bridge between crypto and the traditional financial world, he says. So what does that really look like at the end of the day? When you think about, you know, Binance getting more into traditional finance, can they do it successfully? Similar to how we've seen fintechs like SoFi do it. Uh, they did it by buying a bank for less than a billion dollars and getting that banking license. I want to show you here what it looks like in terms of multiples, though, because if you look at what it means to be a bank or buy a bank, even Coinbase, with that huge drawdown you've seen in the stock this year, you're still seeing them trade at a higher price to earnings than you are seeing the biggest banks in the United States, both regional and large investment banks, trade at. That is between 9 and 11 times earnings, and you're seeing Coinbase trade at a higher multiple. And when you look back again at what CZ had said, is that when traditional crypto firms do pair with uh, finance firms, you do see uh, the stock tend to jump of those finance firms. And he says by partnering with those companies, maybe taking a stake or buying outright, what you can get potentially is a higher multiple, both for Binance and that financial firm. So it will be interesting to see what kind of deals come out of Binance and others as we move along, not just through partnership like we've seen for the last year or so, but by pure money put into traditional financial firms, by firms that have gotten so large in the crypto space like Binance. All right, uh, Shanali, so much more to come there. I know, Shanali Bosick, thank you. Coming up, with U.S.-China tensions continuing to escalate, we're taking an in-depth look at the Chinese tech giant Alibaba. How did it get this far, but what's next under a potentially more controlling Communist Party? And what's up with Jack Ma? We'll discuss next. This is Bloomberg. Let's take a look now at the behind the scenes of one of the world's most influential tech companies in China and the world, and that is Alibaba. It's the topic of a new book from a former Alibaba executive called The Tao of Alibaba, Inside the Chinese Digital Giant That is Changing the World. So how did Alibaba take on the world and what's it got coming next? Let's bring in author Brian Wong for more, a former top Alibaba executive. So, Brian, you were the first American that worked at Alibaba, the 52nd 
employee and a special assistant to Jack Ma. So you've seen some things, uh, we should say. What do you think is Alibaba and Jack Ma's secret sauce? Well, you know, uh, Emily, I, I wrote this book because I really wanted to share what my um, understanding and perception was from the nearly 20 years I was with the company about, you know, the essence of sort of Jack Ma and Alibaba. And I think, you know, to put it in very um, basic terms is uh, Jack really um, was able to build a company around a, a very deep purpose um, of solving the world's problems. He, uh, he created a culture that was very... Um, optimistic and positive, and he was able to align an organization to all focus on that that uh, mission, but at the same time give them the flexibility to adapt to the constantly changing world and the industry that it, it's operating in, in order to, for it to become successful. So I've seen the company recreate itself over and over over these last 20 years, and I think really at the essence of it was what I call the DAO, but it's really this kind of um, really strong uh, mission-driven and purpose-driven organization and culture that Jack helped to uh, create. So the question is, can Alibaba reinvent itself again? When the company tried to globalize a few years back, it didn't quite work. Should Alibaba revive those ambitions now? And, and will it work when the, there's others pushing for de-globalization? Well, you know, one of the, the amazing things about the company uh, throughout its history is how resilient it's been. You know, when it was very small, it faced some existential crises. Um, before COVID, there was something called SARS, and it was a very small company. And the company actually mobilized itself without even the direction of the leaders. But the staff came together and figured out ways to keep the company operating uh, in its early years, but also to launch what we now know as one of the major retail businesses called Taobao during a lockdown period when you didn't have the conveniences that we have today in terms of mobile uh, connectivity and, and, and devices. So I believe that the company with its DNA and the culture that's been really um, established and uh, uh, you know institutionalized with Alibaba, it does have great potential to uh, uh, continue to grow, but also, as you just asked, globalize. Yes, I think that um, the world uh, now really needs some you know positive forces um, that utilize the you know things like technology to actually improve society and frankly to solve a lot of the problems that we're facing, um, not not just in the developed world but in the emerging markets. That said, China's COVID zero policies have had a, a myriad of potentially negative impacts when you're talking about the supply chain and, you know, basic consumer demand and execution. Yeah. Some yeah. people say Alibaba's glory days are over. What do you think? Sure. Well, look, I think the the challenges of zero COVID and the supply chain are a, more of a, a larger national issue that needs to be resolved. And I think the, the country is trying to work through that. You know, we may agree or disagree with how they're handling it, but really this is something that needs to take place on a national level. And then eventually, you know, the companies can get back on their feet and do the things they need to do. I, I do think, though, this experience has really built up um, really strong capacity in terms of dealing with uncertainty. And if you look at how companies like Alibaba, you know, were able to adapt to uh, the situation over the years, I think they're going to come out stronger once this is all done. The question is, though, how does big tech survive in President Xi's China when Beijing cracked yeah. down on the Ant IPO? 
it basically put a scarlet letter on Alibaba and Jack Ma himself. What's the way out? Well, look, I think the anti-IPO situation was one of a, of, a, of a string of events that happened. And probably, uh, you know, it was so high profile because it was at the start of this kind of change in policy. But also, yes, it was a very major decision and quite sudden. But I do think that, you know, what this really indicates is a shift in terms of government policy, one that was previously a kind of a late touch sort of governance model where it allowed for room for innovation to one where it's more heavily regulated. But this is a global issue. If you think about what we're dealing with now in the upcoming Supreme Court decisions in terms of antitrust and privacy and these issues, this is America. In, in Europe, we're dealing with this and also China. And this is where big tech has become, you know, big and influential um, and governments are trying to figure out how to, how to manage this. So I do think that each respective country and its, its governments will figure out the solution or the policy for that. But I do think if you're, if you're asking about opportunities down the road, um, there are definitely new opportunities in the market, um, you know, in higher quality sort of, um, you know, industries or, 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 or you know, areas. Um, China is essentially trying to upgrade its industrial capacity. And how companies can play in those spaces is really going to be the secret to their uh, future growth and success if they can really tap into that. Jack Ma still hasn't been seen publicly in some time. When is the last time you spoke with him? Where do you think he is and how is he doing? Well, you know, I've been in touch with Jack, um, you know, throughout the last two years and in, 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 um, in communication. And, you know, he's been he's been free to move around. He's been laying low, obviously. Um, you know, he's traveled abroad. Um, you know, uh, people have mentioned they've seen him in Europe and other places in Asia. But I think he's really, um, Emily, he's gearing up for his next act, which is really around philanthropy, education, you know, helping uh, those areas uh, that really need assistance. Um, and it's a passion of his is to really um, help those who are kind of the more marginalized uh, parts of society to really get on their feet, rural communities, um, but also learning. You know, I think he was doing a lot of learning tours uh, in, in his last two years. Um, so. So I, I think he's okay, but I, I think that a lot of people have been wondering, and, and uh, hopefully at some point, you know, he will um, have his next sort of, uh, you know, uh, big thing to come out in terms of what he wants to do in philanthropy, and, and people will know. Well, wondering, and rightly so. I mean, he was so out there. He was a, a frequent guest on 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 this show. Yes. He loved um, talking to the press. Um, you know, here's the last question. Obviously, U.S.-China tensions are escalating. How is that going to play a role in whether Alibaba succeeds in this new world or not? Well, look, I think it's still in in process. I think the countries are, are battering, uh, you know, really buckling down and trying to figure out what's their best policy in the interest of national security. And unfortunately, um, you know, sometimes that means that uh, the relationships turn very tense and, 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 and challenging. But I really do hope that, as many of the, um, the diplomats and the, and the politicians have mentioned, that the key here is to continue to engage uh, and compete uh, at the same time. Um, there are key issues 
on a global basis that China and U.S. need to cooperate on. And I think that those are actually more important uh, in the long run than, you know, uh, these disputes that we're, we're, we're facing that, that are kind of creating that tension. Um, so, you know, I'm confident that, you know, with the G20 coming up, uh, hopefully, you know, there will be some dialogue, um, you know, with, between the two governments, um, however that may turn out. But, uh, you know, that these, okay. these two countries need to continue to collaborate. Yeah. Brian Wong, former Alibaba executive, author of The Tao of Alibaba, Inside the Chinese Digital Giant That's Changing the World. Uh, thanks so much, Brian, for joining us. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Thursday, we've got the CEO of Aurora, Chris Ermson, talking about big changes and challenges ahead for self-driving technology. I'm Emily Shang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. Today with Amazon Business, Shannon Stuckey of Walburn Woodworking helped her team buy 63 circular saws. Okay, Andy, take it easy. Now she uses her time to focus on growing something big. Buy smarter, dream bigger. Visit Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Can't get your day started or keep it going without coffee? Well, get in on the buzz. Smoothie King does coffee better than the rest. Delicious coffee smoothies made with your choice of new robust espresso or mellow cold brew. Plus the added boost of real nutrition and no artificial flavors. Now, any time of day, make Smoothie King your king of coffee. Just pure energy and clean ingredients in every sip. Buzz in with the Smoothie King app to discover exclusive savings for our Healthy Rewards members. This is the FCB Podcast Network. Everybody, um, I would like to welcome you to the Power of Our Dollar podcast. Um, this is a new podcast hosted on FCBRadio.com, and we are looking to highlight Black businesses in the Northeast Ohio region. Um, today, we have our first interview. And we have De- De- Deontay, excuse me, Deontay Morrow of the Morrow Group and Company. Um, the Morrow Group and Company is a brokerage, an insurance brokerage agency. Um, and I just like to welcome you, Deontay. How are you today? I'm doing awesome. Thank you for having me. I feel blessed, and it's a pleasure to be your first episode. Great. We're so glad to have you here. Um, tell us about the Morrow Group. Um, what exactly, as an insurance brokerage, what do you do and what are the products that you offer? Okay, I'll start off by saying we are based in Cleveland, Ohio, right in the Collinwood area. Uh, but we service clients for auto, home, any type of business insurance, life insurance as well, nationwide. Uh, Our primary states are Georgia, Texas, Florida, and of course, Ohio. 
And we have some other states that we service uh, clients for as well, but those are our main focus states. Okay. So um, you service Ohio and other states. Um, tell us, you know, why you got into the business, what made you, um, you know, what, what is your passion in terms of the work that you do? Uh, I've been, I've been in the industry for about five, going on six years now. It's funny. Every time I get asked that question by someone that's not in the industry versus someone that's in the industry, most insurance brokers, agents, they randomly just fall into the position. Uh, and that's, that's kind of my story. My background is athletics. I was a hometown Cleveland football player. I went to St. Edward High School where I played football. I played a couple of sports, but my main focus sport was football. I then was blessed with the opportunity to have scholarships to play football on the bigger stage. I played in the Big Ten and I finished up and got my degree at the University of Toledo which is where I finished my last two years as a starter. I then went, I was an NFL free agent uh, for a little bit, but as you know, if you're an athlete, if you're a free agent, you don't get paid. Uh, so I, then I went to the coaching aspect of it. I was a division one coach for three years, for three seasons. From there, I transitioned from the coaching realm moved back to Cleveland to be a little bit closer to my son because I was coaching in Charlotte, North Carolina. And randomly, you know, on a search uh, for a new career, ended up in the insurance industry. Uh, ended up at a call center at a Fortune 500 company. Was not a fan of the call center, but I learned a lot. And I still wanted to get involved and be involved in the athletic realm of it. So as I began to plan uh, my future endeavors, uh, my business, I started business plans and so on and so forth. And it involved the insurance because I was in the insurance industry because I was very intrigued and interested by what I had learned. So from there, launched the Morrow Group and Company. And my passion is just to assist people. Um, I enjoy educating individuals on the insurance industry and how it works. Because when you come from the inner city of Cleveland amongst nationwide inner cities where there's a lot of poverty, a lot of, and a lot of uneducated individuals, when it comes to the insurance industry, um, somebody has to be the go-to. I enjoy being that go-to person uh, to one, educate them, and then make sure they are provided the, the correct coverage, whether it's an SR-22 for somebody that has a bad driving record, uh, um, a business policy, whether for a, for a bar or a, a barbershop or a home health care agency, uh, whether, whether it's life insurance for a top, for a new mom, 
or for you know a daughter looking to purchase life insurance or final expense insurance on a grandparent or or a parent for that nature. Um, I found that a lot of times in the inner city, we don't we don't have we feel like we don't have access to that information, uh, and we don't know who to contact. And I take pride in in being that individual to where individuals feel like they can contact me, trust me, be a, to be their trustworthy broker to make sure that whatever type of insurance they need, I'm the go-to guy and the moral group and company can get it done for them. Okay, wonderful. So when you say that you enjoy um, educating people, what is the number one message that you would give to people about the importance of insurance, um and why having access to it is is valuable well number one thing i would say is get it now because it's always needed when it comes to auto insurance you have to have auto insurance if you have a car because it's illegal to drive without insurance Mm. when it comes to life insurance you're guaranteed once you're guaranteed, once you once you're born, you're guaranteed one thing in life, and that's that you're going to pass away at some point in time. So, if you're a parent who's got a child, um, you should have a policy on yourself to make sure that you leave your your child with something. If you're a parent with you should also have a life insurance policy on your child to make sure that they have something they can pass down. For generations, uh, people have been using life insurance policies as to start or fund generational wealth, with the, which is something that is missing in our community. And I enjoy being that individual to want educate my clients on why it's important and how it's important in making sure that they're insured and properly. So I have a kind of a personal question to that. Yes, yes. Specifically about life insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm one that I feel like I'm relatively um, educated or I try to be. Um, and life insurance has been one thing that's been relatively complicated for me. I, I will tell you in the different types of policies. Um, but, um, even more recently I was watching like a Susie Orman or something like that. And, um, having, she was having the conversation about having life insurance and, um, one of her uh, tips, I guess, was that um, instead of investing in a life insurance policy um, for someone like myself, who at this point, um, I'm, it's just me. Um, my, my daughter is grown. She's no longer dependent on me, um, even though, again, there's, there's some... Um, some desire to leave something behind. Yes. But her recommendation was to invest kind of that monthly policy money into 
um, another uh, investment vehicle, like a 401k or something that was more liquid, um, what would you say to that, to someone who, for example, has has finished um, raising their children and they are, are independent folks and just kind of my, I'll start off by saying, does your daughter have a child? No, she doesn't. Okay. Uh, hopefully she plans to continue the, uh, to continue to grow your family heritage, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, Possibly. <laughs> I got you. Right now, right. Yeah, when, whenever it happens. Okay? Uh-huh. I'll, I'll give you a situation. You purchase a hundred thousand dollar policy. You make one payment. You make the initial payment. We're not going to say you, but let's just say uh, John Doe purchases a hundred thousand dollar policy in June, makes that initial payment. He's been approved by whatever insurance company. John then passes away from natural death. Um, 45 to 60 days after. Okay, but he's only made three payments. Let's say those payments have been 50 bucks. It's $150, correct? Uh He passes away. Your daughter is listed as a beneficiary or John's daughter is listed as a beneficiary. John's daughter now inherits Minus of course, minus of course, those funeral expenses, so on and so forth, inherits inherits whatever that balance is. So let's say the average funeral uh, expenses are twenty thousand dollars. You've paid a hundred. John has paid a hundred and fifty thousand dollars or fifty a hundred and fifty dollars for a hundred thousand dollars worth of coverage. The funeral expenses were twenty thousand dollars. He now leaves his daughter with $80,000. If you invest that same money into whatever other vehicle you choose to invest it in, are you guaranteed that type of, I'm not even going to say profit, are you guaranteed that type of, because it's not a profit because somebody's losing their life, correct? Uh, Right. Of course, we would always rather the individual, especially if it's somebody that's important and impactful in your life, right, over the money. But you give me a vehicle, I would, you give me a vehicle that can give you that type of return. You asking me? Yeah, I'm just, that's, that, that would be my argument. Okay. Some, somebody say that, hey, I spent $150 and I now have the total policy was a hundred thousand, but with funeral expenses, let's just say, okay, I now have netted $80,000. And again, this is not about the money at all because we would always rather have that individual in our lives than just the money because it's not always about the money. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's there are very few vehicles that can in, investment vehicles that can do that for you. It's very few. 
right in the inner city that that's a that we they say that's a hell of a flip mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right 150 to eighty thousand dollars Okay. A lot of times, uh, if you're not from the inner city, you most people don't understand that those other investment vehicles that we're talking about mm-hmm. are a little far fetched. And when I say far fetched, is if we we don't have we don't have the financial knowledge to make that happen. Let alone the the funds. I hear that all the time. Hey, why would you purchase a life insurance policy when you can invest it into into the stock market? Again, there's no, there's not that chance of that investing at 150 and making 80,000 in Mm. that time frame. The ratio is a little different. Right. And depending on the life and type of life insurance policy you have, your life insurance policy begins to incur cash value. If you have a whole life policy or a permanent policy, is what we would call it, a whole life policy. If you as long as you pay, make your payments on time, that life insurance policy begins to acquire what we call cash value. So you can, once it continue, once you make those payments, now it's usually a three to five year span where you have to make those payments to acquire that cash value. But once it's in there, it's in there. That cash value is your money. So let's say you make a purchase. Let's say, again, I'll give the $100,000 policy. You make payments for three years. That third year, Let's say the cash value is $1,000. That next year, the cash value is $1,500. The next year, but so on and so on, it increases by five to $1,000, dollars to $1,000 each year. You now have cash value. So if you're in, you can use a life insurance policy for emergency funds. Most people don't know that. You can borrow from your life insurance policy. You can use it for college tuition. You can use it to purchase your first home. You can use it for medical expenses. These are things that we don't know. Mm-hmm. But that we can use our life insurance policies for. Now, I'm not saying there's there's nothing wrong with diversifying your portfolio, but a life insurance policy is something that I'm going to say that all people should have. Okay. Especially if you're from where we are from. When I say we, I mean people that are born and, ra- born and raised in the inner city. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a wonderful explanation. Thank you for that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, If there was someone that um, is interested in being an entrepreneur or, or even specifically getting into the insurance business, what are, what would be your most cautionary tale? 
what would you tell them? Uh, my first cautionary tale would be, well, my advice in general, have a plan. As you heard me tell my story, my the first thing I did once I realized I wanted to stay in the insurance industry, but I wanted to venture off and do my own thing. I started a business plan immediately. Now, it, it to each his own on how, who, what, when, where, how you do your business plan, but there needs to be some type of plan in play, right? Financially, how are we going to make this happen? What do we see? Set a three-month goal. Set a six-month goal. You can set a one-year goal, three-year goal, five-year goal, ten-year goal. There has to be a plan in place. That's one. You have to be self-motivated. You have to be willing to do the work. Because at the end of the day, you get out what you put in. And you cannot, number three is, you cannot be afraid to fail. Mm, that's good. You cannot be afraid to fail. So if I had to provide three gems for anybody, right? One, put a plan in place. Because if you're going to be an entrepreneur, if anybody who's successful, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're working at a Fortune 500, the number Fortune 500 company, number one thing that anybody will tell you uh, is that you have to be organized. So if you have a business plan in place and you're sticking to that strategy, probably organized. Number two is you got to be self-motivated. You're going to have to work longer and harder, understanding that eventually it'll pay off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Three, you can't be afraid to fail, right? If you're afraid to fail, you'll never be able to reach your goals. Failure isn't failure when it comes to business. Failure is you should take you should take it as a learning lesson, a tool. Okay, right. did this the wrong way this time? Now I know I need to go to path B and not path A, and it'll probably give me a different result. Now I need to, okay, this was, I did this right, but I did this wrong. I need to restructure my business plan to make sure A plus B equals C. Right, your business plan is a fluid document. So it's something that can always be adjusted, right? Always. Absolutely. So that's wonderful. So I guess my one last question is just to leave us with some motivation. Um, In this, in this, I I feel like in this atmosphere, in this environment, we're no matter where we're at, whether we're entrepreneurs or just going to work every day, um, we have some struggles. So what would you leave us with as, as we face our these daily struggles and looking at these economic times? Um, first and foremost, you know, make sure your spiritual presence is there. So whatever religion you are, whoever you believe in, make sure your faith is strong. That's one. Two, uh, 
just enjoy life. Enjoy that is that is purest form. So enjoy your family, enjoy your friends, enjoy your loved ones, enjoy your craft. And by craft, if, if that is, if you're an entrepreneur, enjoy it. If you're you are a nine to five worker. Enjoy it because something you know it can be taken away from you. So enjoy it at its purest form. Embrace it and be yourself. Be confident in who you are. Stand on your ten toes. Whatever your morals and character, whoever you are, be that person and be confident in that person. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Deontay. Um, if anybody is interested in reaching out to you or would like to um, purchase any of your services, how can they reach you? I can be reached on social media at The Real Insurance Coach. Once again, that is The Real Insurance Coach on Instagram. Um, Agency Instagram is the Morrow Group and Co. The Morrow Group Co. On Instagram, that's our business page. We have a website where you can request a quote. www.morrowgroupco.com. Once again, that's www.morrowgroupco.com, and you can also find us on Google. We are one of the top-rated homeowners insurance producers on Google. Uh, if you click in the name, we'll be up there. We are, uh, I believe, a 4.5 to 5-star rating on Google and the Better Business Bureau. We also are MBE certified, along with Better Business Bureau as well. All right. Thank you, Deontay. I appreciate your time. You guys make sure to check him out. Um, like he said, on uh, the Moral Group and Co. on Instagram, Google him. Um, looking at his website, there are many, many insurance vehicles that he has for your personal life, your business. Um, Y'all, most of us cannot function validly in a business without insurance. There's many places and spaces you have to have, be able to prove you have insurance in your business. So um, he is the agent to go to if you're looking for those products, um, business, nonprofit insurance, anything like that. Uh, give him a call. Um, again, this is the power of your Dollar Podcast. My name is Ashley Evans. I am your host. If you'd like to hear more from me, uh, please feel free to check out Views with Ashley Evans on any of your podcast stations. Over there, we're talking about politics and culture. So check us out there as well. And you can always follow me on Instagram at Ashley's Views, A-S-H-L-E-Y-E-S-B-I-E-W-S. -E -E um, and we look forward to more. Thank you again, Deontay. Thank you for having me. All right, you guys have a great day.
This has been a presentation of the FCB Podcast Network, where real talk lives. Visit us online at fcbpodcasts.com. Today with Amazon Business, Shannon Stuckey of Walburn Woodworking helped her team buy 63 circular saws. Okay, Andy, take it easy. Now she uses her time to focus on growing something big. Buy smarter, dream bigger. Visit Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Have you been waiting for just the right job? Then welcome to the end of your search. Amazon has seasonal warehouse jobs in your area, and now is a great time to apply. You can start getting paid right away and work close to home. Applying is easy. You don't even need an interview. So what are you waiting for? Come join the team and get a great seasonal job offer today. Visit Amazon.com slash hiring. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. Georgia, if you love playing Fantasy Five, you're gonna love it even more because we're giving away stacks and stacks and stacks of cash. Now through November 27th, five winners each week will win just by playing Fantasy Five, and the cash stack grows to ten thousand dollars. Play online or enter your non-winning Fantasy Five ticket at fantasyfivegiveaway.com for your chance to be a weekly winner. It all ends November 27th, so play Fantasy Five during the Stacks of Cash giveaway only from the Georgia Lottery. Play responsibly. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up to get over 50% off a membership, plus coupons. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in McDonough. Visit BJ's.com slash McDonough or the BJ's Membership Center on Highway 81 West. Limited time offer, new members only. What's going on? Hey, Georgia, if you love playing Fantasy Five, you're going to love it even more because we're giving away stacks and stacks and stacks of cash. Now through November 27th, five winners each week will win just by playing Fantasy Five. And the cash stack grows to $10,000. Play online or enter your non-winning Fantasy Five ticket at fantasyfivegiveaway.com for your chance to be a weekly winner. It all ends November 27th, so play Fantasy Five during the Stacks of Cash giveaway only from the Georgia Lottery. Play responsibly. Take care of your property with equipment you can count on, like the Kubota BX and LO1 Series compact tractors, part of our under 100 horsepower tractor lineup, rated number one for reliability, and Z Series mowers and sidekick utility vehicles, where durability meets speed. Visit your local Kubota dealer for a demo today. Go to KubotaUSA.com for full disclaimer. Visit GoKubota.com for a dealer near you. Hey, Georgia, if you love playing Fantasy Five, you're going to love it 
even more because we're giving away stacks and stacks and stacks of cash. Now through November 27th, five winners each week will win just by playing Fantasy Five. And the cash stack grows to $10,000. Play online or enter your non-winning Fantasy Five ticket at fantasy5giveaway.com for your chance to be a weekly winner. It all ends November 27th. So play Fantasy Five during the stacks of cash giveaway only from the Georgia Lottery. Play responsibly. On Diehards, it's Clint back here with the total takedown for Thursday, UFC Vegas 64 edition. And uh, yes, I am rocking all the Coyotes gear still. This is my uh, cold room warm stuff. It's cold, it's wet, it's rainy. You're going to be seeing a lot of this. I'm going to bust out the beanie here pretty soon. Anyway, we're going to go back over UFC Vegas 64. This time we're talking totals, overs, and unders. Hit the like button for me. Subscribe if you haven't already. And hey, give me a share. If you're listening to this thing on audio, give me a review. Preferably five stars. But, you know, if you want to say you hate my face, that's fine too. I'll take it. First fight of the night. Ramona Pascal taking on Timiris Vidal. We've got a total set at two and a half. The over is minus 215. The under two and a half is plus 190. We're talking unknown women's MMA here, and usually, especially with the way Ramona fights, you would think over, right? Over 2.5 minus 215 sounds like a sweet deal. However, the way Vidal fights, I think this is going to turn into a bit of a barn burner. I think Ramona's got some serious offensive upside here in this thing, and the way Vidal falls for leg locks, the way she tries to attack people's legs and ankles and stuff like that, there is actually... A decent chance that this fight finishes. It's classic women's MMA for me, though. I would want fight doesn't go the distance. I would want that extra 2 minutes and 30 seconds at the end of the fight and just get, like, you know, plus 170 or plus 175, something like that. Fight doesn't go the distance rather than the plus 190 for the under 2.5 because those final couple minutes of the third round could make all the difference. I absolutely can see Vidal gassing out Ramona TKOing her. I can see Ramona making a dumb grappling mistake and getting an arm or a leg snapped off by Vidal. This thing definitely could go under. Lots of volatility. First fight of the night. I'll choose violence. I'm probably not going to bet that though. <laughs> Next up, Jake Hadley taking on Carlos Condelario. Almost the exact opposite. Total set at 2.5. The over is minus 215. The under is plus 190. Carlos Condelario is incredibly tough. Incredibly durable. Kind of meat and potato striker. Good single leg. He leaves his neck out there to be had a little bit. I talked about that on the Monday podcast. Jake Hadley can dive on people's necks and he's got a tight guillotine on him. So I do think there is a little bit of submission upside here on the Jake Hadley side of things. But more than likely... We're going to get kind of a semi-technical brawl here on the feet where these guys go at it in the striking realm. And if that's the case, both of them are more than capable of uh, gutting it out and getting to the judges' scorecard. So I kind of like the over 2.5 at minus 215 here for the second fight of the night. Johnny Munoz Jr. taking on Ludwig Shalinian total again at 2.5. Over is minus 180. Under is plus 160. And I feel like the finish only comes from one side here most of the time. Johnny Munoz Jr.'s submissions are wicked. This dude is so slick on the ground. He is a fantastic top position player. 
Ludwig Shalinian, though, has a wrestling background, so he could give up his neck in a, uh, you know, poor takedown attempt. He also could uh, be in trouble if he ends up on bottom. Now, if he's sitting on top, though, this thing is going to be a grind fest. He's going to try to stay safe, try to survive Johnny Munoz. The only reason I feel like there's maybe some finishing upside on the Ludwig Shalinian side is the chin of Johnny Munoz Jr. We've seen him chinned a couple times. He leaves his head up. He's got that tall man defense. That chin is there to be cracked. So I am very, very skeptical of this fight. It's tough to call. I kind of like violence. I think Johnny Munoz Jr. is going to find a submission at some point in this fight. However, I really don't like the number here. And the under 2.5 at plus 160, I'd rather play Johnny Munoz by sub by itself. Ludwig Shaolinian knockout is there, but I'm not overly impressed with Shaolinian. I think if he wins, it's more of a decision grinding affair. So I'm going to stay completely far away from this one. I guess I'll say over two and a half. I mean, this is one of those ones where I kind of contradict myself. When you think about the fight as a whole, I think the over makes sense. But what I really think is going to happen is Johnny Munoz gets a sub. So, uh, I don't know. I'll pick the under. Under two and a half, plus 160. Ginu Frey, Pollyanna Viana, over two and a half is minus 220. The under two and a half, plus 190. And I think over. Uh, Pollyanna Viana getting better. She's young. She's tough. She's gritty. She gets taken down, put on her back, looks for subs. If she doesn't armbar you from her back, she'll just kind of play off her back for the whole time. Ginny Frey, constant forward pressure. She's got that big left hand, but she doesn't have much beyond that, so she doesn't really finish anybody. This thing is headed for the judges' scorecards unless Pollyanna Viana finds herself a submission. I don't see Ginny Frey finishing Pollyanna, so I think it's probably going over more often than not. Long way to say minus 220, over 2.5. Benito Lopez taking on Mario Bautista. Total again at 2.5. Over is minus 130, under is plus 110. Now we got a much more interesting uh, line here, and a couple of them coming up here will actually have some stuff to talk about. Both these guys are high-caliber finishers. We've seen Benito Lopez hurt. We've seen Mario Bautista injured and finished. Uh, Benito Lopez has a history of injury in general coming off a three-year layoff. So we're going to get a whole new version of him. Is he a point fodder now? Does he continue throwing flying knees? I don't know. We haven't seen him in three years. So more often than not, I think this is going to be a clash. I think Mario Bautista, the way he fights, just kind of forces a bit of a brawl. And Benito Lopez, being the flashy striker that he is, he'll look for those opportunities. That's always what he's been. That's always what he's done. I've got a hard time uh, imagining that he's completely retooled his entire game plan in his absence. So, I do think both guys have more than enough finishing upside, and we have seen both guys finished. So, I will say the under 2.5 at plus 110. Shannon Young taking on Miranda Maverick. The total set at 2.5 again for this one. At a pick'em, at a pick'em, minus 110 for women's MMA. This one's tough because Miranda Maverick tapped out Shannon Young in like. 60 seconds in their first fight. Shannon Young cracked Miranda Maverick and she panic wrestled from getting hit so hard. So Miranda took it to the mat, didn't take her long to get the back, tapped Shannon Young out. This is a classic spot where I think one fighter is being massively overrated, the other fighter is being massively underrated. However, 
I do agree with Miranda Maverick being favored. So just because I think Shanna Young is better than people give her credit for doesn't mean Miranda Maverick is not still going to choke her out. I think the grappling advantage for Miranda Maverick cannot be understated, but I also think Shanna Young's probably gotten better. There's a chance she kind of survives here, and with these women's MMA totals, it is so rare we see them drop down to minus 110 because they go over just so, so very often. If Shanna Young plays her cards right, she makes it to the judges' scorecards, and I think we can get over this two and a half. The man, uh, Miranda Maverick sub is definitely something there that we're going to have to watch out for. But again, you're going to get a better number playing that submission prop by itself. That's really the only way I see this fight ending. Unless Shanna Young does another banana peel meme KO type of thing and catches Miranda Maverick coming in. Either way, it's either a submission or a decision. So I'm going to say over two and a half just based on the line value of the minus 110. But like I said, I don't mind taking a look at the Miranda Maverick submission prop because it's like plus 165, plus 170. And that's much more the way this fight will finish if it does. Shailan Nerd and Becky taking on Derek Minner. I played this one, folks. This is the one that jumped off the table at me. I'm already in on it pretty big. Over 2.5 is plus 100 even money. Under 2.5 minus 120. And I'm on the under 2.5 minus 120. I like violence here. Derek Minner is a guy that comes out like a bat out of hell in round one. He's got crazy submissions. He's got those big clubbing power strikes, trying to hurt you, trying to rock you, get you down to the ground, and then he'll take you back and he'll tap you out. Shailon Nerdenbeki, he's basically all grappling. He wings heavies, like these big, uncontrolled, unfocused, wild power strikes just trying to hurt you and then he'll get on top of you and instead of looking for subs though he'll kind of blanket wrestle you is what he looks for but you see his last fight man he gave up so many bad positions so many bad positions to tj and if you give Derek minner those opportunities he will make you pay for it shailon nerd and becky's been submitted i believe six times in his professional career. So that's kind of the hole in his grappling game. Is when he fights one of these savvy submission fighters. He gives it up. And frankly uh, Derek Minner may be a step up in competition for him. Coming into this spot. Minner on the flip side of this thing. He's coming off of having a concussion. Legitimately. Like he cancelled his last fight due to concussion symptoms. And he has a 7 minute gas tank. So if he doesn't get his opponent out of there in the first round, he just falls apart the deeper the fight goes. So if Derek Minner does not get the round one sub, I fully expect Shailon to take over. And then once Derek gets tired, Shailon can open up from there. Either get a sub of his own or a TKO under two and a half. Both guys can be finished very easily. Both guys have that upside of finishing ability. Give me that minus 120 for the under two and a half. Mark Madsen. Taking on Grant Dawson, uh, both high-caliber grapplers here. Caliber, I missed the B there. High-caliber grapplers here. Over 2.5 is minus 200. The under 2.5 is plus 175. And I would say over makes the most sense to me here. Mark Madsen is a guy that, I've talked about this, he gets tired and he just finds a way to work through it. He finds a spot where he can slow down, take a deep breath, and reload. And then he forces himself through again. And gets to the decision. That's what he does every single time. He's undefeated and he just keeps on finding ways to win. He's taking on Grant Dawson here. A guy who does kind of a similar thing. Except he flounders a little bit in that third round. 
you know, you can make the argument that he got submitted, uh, I think it was two fights ago in the third round, where he was hanging on for literally dear life and then couldn't stand up after the bell had rang because that choke was in so tight. The referee didn't call it. Uh, he was able to sit up and, and kind of show he was still there, so he got the decision win. But it's been close. It's been close and hairy for Grant Dawson more than once. Um I could see this fight ending in that third round. I really could. Just the way both these guys fight, the way they go so hard, so heavy grappling early, it leaves not a lot of gas in that third round. But both of them also could be just exhausted enough that whoever gets on top ends up riding out the decision here. Um, I'll say over 2.5, minus 200, I do think the decision is more than likely the path here. If it's going to finish at all, it would be in that final third round. Nate Mana has taken on Tagir Ulembekov, another two and a half total here. And this one is binary. You're picking your fighter, right? And, and the money lines almost correlate with the uh, totals here. Minus 215 on the over two and a half, minus 220 is Tagir. Plus 190, the underdog Nate Manis, plus 190 for the under two and a half. Nate Manis is a finisher. Like, he hurts people when he's on point. He's able to knock anybody out. His jiu-jitsu is serviceable. It's not great. Tahir Ulembekov is a uh, wrestling monster. Team Khabib, he's with the Eagle. So you know what he's going to do. He's not quite the caliber of wrestler that some of those other Russian monsters are. He's a bit more of a striker. But he's a very technical striker. So I could see this thing being a technical fight going over two and a half. But the big question is Nate Maness. Because he's dropping to a new weight class. And... You can't, I'm getting TJ vibes. Like, when TJ tried to drop that extra weight class to go for the double champ status, and he looked like he was a dead man walking, like, Nate Manis looks like a skeleton in the fighter interviews. I'm very scared of what he's going to look like on the scales tomorrow when we check him out. His durability is already something that I find questionable, and I'm going to have even more questions about it after making this weight cut. Now, Tagir is not a big-time finisher guy, but like I said, he's more striker Russian than grappler Russian. If they get into a technical striking match, it wouldn't shock me whatsoever if Nate gets binked because he just can't take a punch. After cutting all that extra weight, he could be exhausted from the effort it takes to get his body down to that weight class. So the under 2.5 in this fight has my attention. Either Nate Manis is a big, big bully, and he's beastly at this weight class, and Tagir doesn't have anything for him because he's awesome, or he's a wounded animal, and he gets taken out by Tagir Ulembekov because the finish will just be there for him. When frankly, normally speaking, he'd be tough enough and durable enough to get through it. Now he can't because he does not have that extra 10 pounds of water weight surrounding his brain. So I'll say violence. Under 2.5 plus 190. Josh Parisian taking on Chase Sherman. Uh, this one, I believe, was a 1.5 a, a little earlier in the week. You get your classic heavyweight over 1.5, which I think this thing could squeeze over. But now they've moved it to a 2.5. Over 2.5 is plus 140, the under 2.5 minus 190. And it would make a lot of sense to me here for this thing to find its way under. Now, we could get a sloppy heavyweight 15-minute affair. But at the same time, Josh Parisian is a guy that if he gets on top of you, you're in trouble. Like his ground and pound, his elbows, his submissions, he's really good from top control positions. Chase Sherman is not good from bottom control positions. 
He did show a better get-up game against Alexander Romanov in his last fight. I will credit him with that. And he's hell on wheels early on in fights. Lots of leg kicks, decent power, the good striking has always been there. He just has a hard time keeping that pace up, and he has a hard time keeping that belief in himself up. He'll quit if you give him the opportunity to. So I could see these guys getting a little bit sloppy, but... You know what, actually, and now that I say that, I could see it getting a little sloppy. I could see these guys kind of laying on each other. The deeper this fight goes, if uh, Chase Sherman isn't able to, like, standing TKO Josh Parisian, a guy who's been pretty tough to put away for the most part, I could see, like, a leaning against the fence, hanging onto each other's wrist, punching bag type of heavyweight affair. And I'll change my answer. I'm going to say over. I'm going to say over two and a half. I'll say Josh Parisian takes the early beating from Chase Sherman and then can't get Chase Sherman or can't keep Chase Sherman down. Maybe they work their way to a decision. I don't have any confidence in this fight whatsoever. I'm not betting that one, so don't take that to the bank or anything. Uh, but if you can get an over one and a half, I'd be far more interested in the over one and a half than I am the over two and a half, even if you have to lay a price on it. Daniel Rodriguez taking on Neil Magny. Another two and a half total here. Whole fight card, two and a halfs this week. Over two and a half is minus 215. The under two and a half plus 190. And again, it's a Neil Magny fight. This guy does one thing, and that's grind. Unless Daniel Rodriguez is the guy to finish Neil Magny, if he's good enough, like Shavkat Rachmanov, to like snatch a neck or something like that, Neil Magny doesn't finish anybody. So this fight is going to be a grindy decision over win, lose, or draw, and I expect it to kind of go that way. I'll save some time. Over 2.5 minus 2.15. Main event time, Amanda Lemos taking on Marina Rodriguez. We got a 4.5 for the ladies. The over 4.5 is plus 100. The under 4.5 is minus 120. And I'd have to side with violence on this one. I'd have to say the under 4.5. Mostly because Amanda Limos is another one of these early finishers. I still, still have no idea how Angela Hill survived that front kick in round one. Marina Rodriguez is tough. She's gritty. She is durable. But she's also facing someone who hits a lot harder than anybody she's fought up till this point. So Amanda Limos always has that chance to catch her. If this fight gets extended, though, we've never seen Amanda Limos go past three rounds. We've seen her get tired in that third round. She lost the split to uh, Angela Hill in that situation where she started to slow down. This is a five-round main event, folks. Marina Rodriguez is someone who ramps up the deeper the fight goes. She starts to feel herself in that second and third round. The volume gets better. She finds her timing and her space. I could see a late finish from Marina Rodriguez as much as I could see an early finish from Amanda Lemos. I know we don't see a lot of finishes with women's MMA, but the way these two match up, I kind of think that's the way to go. If they start fast, I don't think it's going to last very long. So I would say under 4.5 at minus 120. It's tough to lay unders with women's MMA fights especially but, you know, these two fighters are some of the few ones, you know, you think about like Wiley Zhang and you think about Rose Nami Yunus, Amanda or Jessica Andrade, the women's MMA fighters who do finish and can finish with regularity. This is the next crop of them. Amanda Limos and Marina Rodriguez are fully capable. So I'll say under four and a half, minus 120. That's the total takedown, everybody. Thank you again very much for hanging out. See you tomorrow for the...
take care of your property with equipment you can count on, like the Kubota BX and LO1 Series compact tractors, part of our under 100 horsepower tractor lineup, rated number one for reliability, and Z-Series mowers and sidekick utility vehicles, where durability meets speed. Visit your local Kubota dealer for a demo today. Go to KubotaUSA.com for full disclaimer. Visit GoKubota.com for a dealer near you. Hey, Georgia, if you love playing Fantasy Five, you're going to love it even more because we're giving away stacks and stacks and stacks of cash. Now through November 27th, five winners each week will win just by playing Fantasy Five. And the cash stack grows to $10,000. Play online or enter your non-winning Fantasy Five ticket at fantasy5giveaway.com for your chance to be a weekly winner. It all ends November 27th, so play Fantasy Five during the Stacks of Cash giveaway only from the Georgia Lottery. Play responsibly. Undefeated post weigh-in show. Let's roll. Audio Hey, Georgia, if you love playing Fantasy Five, you're going to love it even more because we're giving away stacks and stacks and stacks of cash. Now through November 27th, five winners each week will win just by playing Fantasy Five. And the cash stack grows to $10,000. Play online or enter your non-winning Fantasy Five ticket at fantasy5giveaway.com for your chance to be a weekly winner. It all ends November 27th, so play Fantasy Five during the Stacks of Cash giveaway only from the Georgia Lottery. Play responsibly. This is the FCB Podcast Network. Cyber Studio doing his thing, and he is one of the co-stars in the upcoming biopic, The uh, True Story, which is highly anticipated, that will be premiering this weekend, uh, called Till, following the life and death of Emmett Till and my brother Enoch King, all the way from the big A, the ATL is in the cyber studio with yours truly. Enoch, what's good, baby? Man, I can't even call it, man. What's up, Cleveland, Ohio, you know? (laughs) Yeah, what's the weather like down there, man? Uh, 
It's Atlanta, so it was warm early. I'm going to walk outside, and I'm going to need a big old coat in a minute. So, you know. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. It's about, it's about 76 degrees right now up here in Cleveland. So we, <laughs> hey, listen, it's still summer for us, bro. Because what I'm telling you, when old man winter kick in, it's over with, man. We'll, we'll be, listen, balled it up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's scary. It's scary uh, being a street. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, right. Man, let me jump right into this show. You man, you have a a, a, a phenomenal career where you actually mm-hmm. actually have made a name for yourself in theater. Yes, sir. Uh what was your biggest role in theater and looking at theater, making it making the transition to the big film? Is there any, was there any big difference or challenge, you know what I mean, doing that? Um, yeah, I asked the, the second question first. Um, really, it was me learning a couple of things. One, uh, the camera catches so much, so you don't have to be as big as you normally are. And when I first started uh, transitioning into film and TV, a lot of the notes, most of the notes I got were like, bring it down, bring it down. You can bring it down. And just um, learning that and learning how much you can convey with just a look on your face, with just your eyes, with just a stillness. Uh, it was really great because then I was able to actually incorporate that into my theater work as well. And so I was able to, you know, hone in on that stillness a bit more to another level. So that was really helpful. Um, big roles. Um, I I got an opportunity to do Miss Evers Boys with True Colors. Kenny Leon's True Colors Theater Company down here. And it was with Jasmine Guy, T.C. Carson, Roger Mitchell. And I got a chance to be on stage with people that I've always admired uh, for Mm -hmm. their art and for for what they bring. And I got to learn so much and I got to build some great friendships. And it just kind of helped me to recognize that I, what I've been working for really since I was 18, there's a place for it. There's a place for me in the arts uh, industry, in the entertainment industry. So that was really helpful. That's dope, man, when you think about it, man. And you know, uh, as time evolved, we look at 2022, man, you know, acting and, and just theater itself has really uh, made its way, has really made a great impact uh, on the entertainment industry. Uh, when you look at uh, this this phenomenal uh, movie that's getting ready to come out, and you were a part of it, man, um, what was more, what was moving about the movie as you, uh, you know, played? the role you're playing, but also, you know, just understanding the movement itself. What was what was moving to you? What touched you the most? Um it's 
this movie is so uh in alignment with with my um own personal theater experience i actually played emmett till in a show called Anne and Emmett. It was an imaginary conversation between Anne Frank and Emmett Till. And so I've known about Emmett, I, I, I learned about Emmett Till a long time ago when I was in high school with my youth theater company that I was in. And I learned so much more uh, just stepping into that role. I learned so much more about the person that he was. I knew oh. about the tragedy of his of his murder, but to learn how fun he was, how funny he was, how silly he was, and just how much life he had, that 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 makes it all the more tragic that something as hatred can just kind of take away somebody so beautiful, somebody so uh, just fun and full of life. And so the, the movie, it, to be able to step into it from a different perspective, being, you know, playing the role that I was, yeah. that I'm playing, like, right, it, right. Was, it was a bit surreal. It, um, it was a bit surreal, but it, it kind of lined up. I I I respect I respect that story so much, and I think it does need to be told and really understood and understand how much of a catapult and a catalyst his his murder was in helping um, get the civil rights movement moving. Yeah, when you look at well, fast forwarding now. When we look at the challenges with uh, voter suppression and mm -hmm. all the different things that we're dealing with, you know, um, right now there's a report, there were some reports that came out that early voting has surged because mm -hmm. we, we look at the challenges with democracy. Um, my question to you, how do we, those of us that have a voice, you know, I consider you having a voice. Mm -hmm. You use your platform. I use my platform as a syndicated radio and podcast host, right? Mm -hmm. How do we motivate our people to get more engaged in voting, understanding, hey, you know what? This immaterial story is real. Look at Martin Luther King. Look at those that have fought so we can vote, even though I understand that sometimes our community feel like the system doesn't work, but we still live in the system. So we still have to um, do what's necessary within the system to make it work for us. Absolutely. How would you motivate people, our people, those in your community um, and at large to engage so we can learn from the lessons of Emmett Till and those that 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 have been martyred and, and murdered through hate and through bigotry and through uh, suppression and just the history that that has been ugly. But now we have an opportunity mm -hmm. uh, as a community to speak out and use our voice at the ballot box. 
how, what would you say to someone that that's discouraged about voting? I would I I I've encountered uh, people who who are discouraged and. I like having conversations and understanding why. And let's have a full, full-fledged, honest conversation all around. I think it's real easy to get so discouraged that you want to not continue. But I mean, the 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 life and the space that I live in and that we live in as entertainers, as artists, deals with feeling like you're not valued. That, you, that your voice is not heard, but we are a testament that if you continue to push and to continue to find your voice and let your voice be heard, then they have no choice but to hear it. And I think it's yeah. just understanding that. And I think we were seeing it, especially with these early voting, just the, the, the high number of early voters that are coming out. I think people are really recognizing now more than ever that it 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 really is a very trying and feasibly dangerous time in this moment. And mm -hmm. if you have an opportunity to make a difference, understanding how important it is and i think people recognizing and seeing that there is voter suppression people are understanding now more than ever is like oh if there's voter suppression that means that my vote does matter because otherwise why would you be trying to suppress it and so i think that's why you get a large influx of numbers of people yeah. trying to get this early voting because all the stuff uh, that's been happening uh, in this past year, people are like, yo, nah, bruh, can't even do it. Yeah, because I'm getting to my early vote in this week. <laughs> I ain't playing around. Right, 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 right. That's, that's, that's good, man. Let's talk a little bit about your character. Yes, sir. You know, I, you know these, cause these interviews are not long-lived or short-lived, but we definitely, you know, want to make sure you come back and hang out with us. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, um, talk a little bit about your character um, and the role that you're playing because you do play a major a major uh, part in the movie as well. So talk to you a little bit about that. In my role, um, the role I play is a man named Johnny B. Washington. And um, without giving a lot of weight, but Johnny B. Washington was one of the men allegedly implemented in in the abduction of Emmett. Um, there was a lot of speculation that people knew about Milam and Bryant and taking Emmett that night, but there was also, um, there were also uh, speculation and people and witnesses saying that there were, there were two black, two to three black men involved as well who helped carry that out as well. And so um, I just getting in, stepping into the role and finding out about that, um, it it is a bit jarring, you know? And, and there are moments, even though it's, it's not, the movie is shown in such a way not to show the, 
violence and the trauma of what happened to Emmett, but it was still moments at, at night when we were filming certain scenes where you could just feel the energy of the space. It was a stillness to it because this, even though we're filming, even though everybody is safe, there is something that comes around, you know, there's an energy that needs to be there in order to convey the truth. And um, it was a, it was a wild experience. It was a it was amazing. And I was jarred a lot of times. There were a lot of times with certain scenes when um, I know me and um, my my co my co star my castmate, you know, they would say cut, and he would just take a second. He'd be like, "Yo, I just need I just need a second. and he'd just walk and just just step away because it's so much. Yeah. And we know the story, and even now I'm getting emotional because it's like it's it just explaining how um, terrible it was, how horrible it was, and to be an experience on this other side of it, to be a part of it, to be implicated in it, you know, um, I was grateful for the experience, but also, you know, taken aback that there were people that looked like us that were involved as well. Damn, that's deep. Listen, yeah. man, first of all, man, big shout out to you and all the success you. that you have and God has been blessing you with, man. Um, like I say, all good things must come to an end, man. How can people follow you, connect with you, and also uh, make sure you drop all the information as it relates to Teal dropping this weekend as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, follow me on uh, IG, Enoch A. King. Um, Facebook, uh, Enoch Armando King. Um, it's just everything. <laughs> Pretty much everything's just my name. <laughs> I try to, I try to keep it simple. I had some dashes and dots in it, but it was just a, a bit too much. <laughs> yeah, got you. I got you. I got you. Yeah, yeah. And until drops this weekend, I'm yeah, I'm correct. Yeah, it don't. In all theaters, it opens up this weekend, this Friday. Um, I've heard a lot of people, um, I've heard a lot of people who, who have seen some of the premieres, who've seen some of the screenings, people have been posting on my page and other people's pages that were involved. It was a lot of Atlanta people out there and they were like, yo, this is an absolutely amazing movie. And Danielle Detweiler, um, who I've known for a long time, she did a phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal uh, performance, man. Absolutely mm. heart, heartbreaking and empowering. Wow, that's wow. just, man, it's deep, man. Well, listen, brother, we pray God's blessings on your life. Thank we you, man. Same to you, brother. And, and, continue, and continue success to you. Hey, y'all, listen, my man. Enoch A. King in the building doing his thing. And listen, make sure you guys check him out this weekend for the 
uh, highly acclaimed and highly anticipated movie, Teal. Make sure you guys go subscribe right now on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to uh, this wonderful show on your favorite listening device. Let's go! This has been a presentation of the FCB Podcast Network, where real talk lives. Visit us online at fcbpodcasts.com. Hey, Georgia, if you love playing Fantasy Five, you're going to love it even more because we're giving away stacks and stacks and stacks of cash. Now through November 27th, five winners each week will win just by playing Fantasy Five. And the cash stack grows to $10,000. Play online or enter your non-winning Fantasy Five ticket at FantasyFiveGiveaway.com for your chance to be a weekly winner. It all ends November 27th. So play Fantasy Five during the Stacks of Cash giveaway only from the Georgia Lottery. Play responsibly. Hey, Georgia, if you love playing Fantasy Five, you're going to love it even more because we're giving away stacks and stacks and stacks of cash. Now through November 27th, five winners each week will win just by playing Fantasy Five. And the cash stack grows to $10,000. Play online or enter your non-winning Fantasy Five ticket at FantasyFiveGiveaway.com for your chance to be a weekly winner. It all ends November 27th, so play Fantasy Five during the Stacks of Cash giveaway only from the Georgia Lottery. Play responsibly.